Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Hey everyone, this is Klaatu, and you're listening to Commons and Chronicles, or is it Chronicles and Commons? Nobody knows for sure. This is uh, another entry into my Barsoom series. Barsoom being Mars. Mars uh, in the Edgar Rice Burroughs series of novels, commonly known as just the John Carter books. Or sometimes you might hear them called the Barsoomian, Barsoomian novels, or Barsoom books, or Barsoom novels. No one really knows what it's called, but because back then I don't think they really had proper series. They just called it, I don't know, a book with the same character in it. Um, and it's Edgar Rice Burroughs, and, and some of the novels have fallen into public domain. Not all of them, so I'm covering only content that is in the public domain. Now... If you've never read the books, you're gonna. I'm, I'm, I try to avoid spoilers here, but I'm I'm talking very specifically about a lot of the details of the books. So there are there are bound to be spoilers. So if you've never read the books, just know that you're you're in dangerous territory here because there will probably be spoilers in this episode. Not so much, maybe. Uh, but definitely as of the next Martian race. Oops, I've just spoiled something, actually. You, as far as you know, there are only two Martian races, green and red. I won't say anything more. I'm just saying, after this episode, and possibly during this episode, there could be spoilery types of information that, if you've never read the book and you want it to be a surprise, you should you should stop listening to this now. Okay, so in the previous uh, episode covering Barsoom, I spoke about the Green Martians, and they are the kind of the the quintessential Martians. They are the the green, well, they're the green, the, not the little green men. They're the big green men, four arms, two two legs, tusks out of the side of their heads, really alien creatures. They lay eggs. They do all kinds of weird things. They're they're the Martians now. They are presented a little bit as, uh, as I said in the episode, a little bit akin to maybe the Fremen or the Sand People of Star Wars. The uh, Fremen of Dune, Sand People of of, um, of Star Wars, Tusken Raiders. So they're a little bit of the of of the savage race. Although when you meet them and experience them, they don't actually seem really all that all that savage at all. So it's it's very much from a different perspective that they are presented as kind of a, a quote-unquote savage race. And that other per, uh, perspective is that of the Red Martians. The Red Martians, John Carter meets a little bit later in his travels, and they are very human-like. They are, they are normal humans from uh, on the outward appearance, aside from the fact that they are very, that their skin is, is reddish. It is stated somewhere that that it's not literal red, uh, that that it's more just kind of a, a reddish tint to to the skin tone. But but apparently it's it's strong enough such that John Carter does not resemble them. So 
So it's a little bit unclear as to how red they are. In the book, when I was reading it, the first book, certainly, I always kind of considered them to be quite, quite red. Um, but I guess there are arguments about how red they are. Either way, the, hum- the human-like nature of these of these Martians is 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 mostly outward only. I mean, they they have a, a, a code all their own, so so certainly they they don't act or or seem or feel like like uh, Earthmen, Earthlings. They 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 are very distinct to themselves. They have their own systems of beliefs and their own code of honor and so on. And uh, some of those codes of honor are are more or less global. We'll talk about that in a moment. We've already talked a little bit about it in the Green Martian episode. Uh, other others are are maybe unique to their own to their own society. They are also um, they they lay eggs. the The females lay eggs. They do not give live birth. They lay eggs that are incubated for uh, about five Martian years. Uh, before they hatch, and then when they hatch, they are um, fully developed, except they're just small versions of themselves. And uh, in about, about, I don't know, about seven or eight years later, they they grow into full, to a full Martian. The red Martians don't really wear clothes. It's not a thing on Mars. Clothes don't really exist. Uh, and as I said on the green Martian episode. They it is is mentioned very frequently that there's a lot of or, ornamentation, and certainly in an RPG, I I've never really felt like it was super appropriate to talk too much about um, the lack of clothing around the gaming table. It just kind of mixed company kind of precludes that. So um, I, I think that it can be thought of in in Red Martian culture, and this is supported by the original original art on the on the books, on the on the, the dime novel covers. There's a lot of or- ornamentation happening uh, to such a degree that that lots of straps and um, and 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 large kind of uh, pieces of of metal or 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 stone. Or, or leathers or whatever that would probably cover parts. So while while they might not be called clothing, um, I think that there was there is a there's a definite argument for the idea that, it, that if not Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, then then certainly the the artists doing cover art, admittedly constrained by censors of the time, probably envisioned um, something. Maybe again, you wouldn't call it clothing, but they, they would be ornamentation pieces that would that would support various body parts and sort of keep everything in place whilst I don't know slaughtering other Martian races. So that's just kind of my take on it. I don't know what Edgar Rice Burroughs obviously thought about it, but I I think you can definitely once again just kind of thinking of something obvious to most modern listeners. If you think of of um the the clothing and the style of Jabba the Hutt's little palace I think that would be very much in it, within the Barsoom kind of style I think you could absolutely argue that Star Wars when creating 
Jabba's entourage accidentally created the the visual the, the visual reference for Barsoom. I think that definitely works. Of course, in your own games and your own imagination, you can think of it as as you will. But I've I've always thought that that was a really good a uh, good way to go. So there are a couple of different major cities in in the Red Martian uh, civilization. And the Red Martian civilization is spread far across the planet. There are certain places they will not go, but they they do have a bunch of cities that are quite popular and well-known and quite powerful. And when Green Martians dwell in cities, which I think I, I mentioned this last time, when they dwell in cities, it's it's usually ruined cities, cities that have been recovered from conquest or from from cataclysm of of Mars, as as Mars is in in the series a dying world. The 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 major kingdom in the books that that you'll hear about because because it is John John Carter's adopted home is Helium H E L I U M. Helium, it is um, ruled at the time of of John Carter by Jeddak Tardos Moors, and remember, a Jeddak is the high, the the highest ruler on on Barsoom, or or not on Barsoom, but within the Barsoom society. There isn't one Jeddak over all of Mars, but but one Jeddak per kingdom or per city. Helium, in fact, consists of two separate cities. There's Lesser Helium and Greater Helium. Greater Helium uh, being home to the the Jeddak of, of Helium. It has uh, one of its most striking features is its Scarlet Tower, where the royal court is located. It is... It, it needs to be well protected, and it it is. It is, from what I understand... Uh, r- removed from the easier access that, for instance, Lesser Helium has. Lesser Helium is uh, distinguished by a, a, a yellow tower, which is ruled by its Jed, Mors Kajak. Mors Kajak being important for, uh, for really his daughter, who we'll, we'll hear about very soon. Lesser Helium happens to be located around several rivers there's a there's a, a whole system of rivers that go all around the lesser city you can get there through over the ocean or over the rivers rather uh, the only problem is that the rivers uh, go through the green martian territory so if you're for instance escaping from the green martians the way john carter was when he was when he first went to helium you would have to you'd have to brave the your captors um, as you travel down the river so helium is ruled by um tardos moors as i've said he's uh, an important figure he's kind of the 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 leader of of the red martians that that we get a lot of time with through john carter but the perhaps more important one for for us, and arguably John Carter himself, 
is Kajak Moore's, uh, Moore's Kajak, rather. And he is important because he is the Jed of Lesser Helium and the father of Dejah Thoris. Dejah Thoris is a Red Martian who is the crown princess of Helium and who falls in love with and marries John Carter. She gives birth to Carthoris, who is the son of John Carter, who doesn't know John Carter from for the first portion of his life uh, because of some some drama that occurs that I just won't go into for fear of spoilers, and it's not really relevant to understanding Red Martians. Helium is a little bit unique because they are actually allies with some of the Green Martians, and that's not typical. But through John Carter and Tars Tarkas's friendship, the Green Martians of, of the, the, the tribe of Tars Tarkas and Helium itself become, become allies. And in fact, they, they go on a couple of expeditions together, so they're, they're solidly allies. Interestingly, not an ally of helium at first at least i mean it, it would depend on when you're you're visiting but um initially when john carter shows up uh, the 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 enemy of helium the long-standing enemy of helium is a place called zodanga that's z-o-d-a-n-g-a zodanga this city is a similarly fortified city uh to helium these are not, you know, these really are more like kingdoms or castles almost. Uh, they are well protected, both helium, well, lesser and greater helium, uh, and Zodanga are, are quite well, well protected, strategically placed, and in terms, in in respect to the to helium and Zodanga, uh, thoroughly at odds with one another. The Zodangans are notably more imperialistic than the Heliumites, while the Heliumites are definitely not not democratic by any means. I mean, they have a, a clear structure based on on warlords, which uh, just the same everywhere. You know, the same with the Green Martians. Uh, a Jeddak is is appointed by killing the previous Jeddak, potentially. You can inherit it if, you know, you, the, if, if nobody kills you, you can pass the title down. But, but it, there's the, there's the, the exception, the exemption of becoming a Jeddak by, by slaying someone. That's a thing. But the, uh, Zodangan society just feels a little bit more regimented, a little bit more, um, a little bit more fascist, I would say, uh, without being full-on fascism. It's just, it's, it's a little bit harsher, a little bit more martial. I guess that's the 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 best word for it. Now they have a deep-rooted hatred for green Martians, and so much so that they go out into the wilderness and actively seek to destroy the green martian incubators remember the green martians uh they take all of their the tribe's eggs to a common location and kind of hide them in a warm secure place and and they check in on them and, and make sure that they're okay but the zodangans um actively go out and seek to destroy the nurseries which i feel is pretty harsh 
There are many, many red Martian kingdoms and city-states to 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 play around with. That there, you get the idea that the red Martians are pretty widespread, and because they typically inhabit cities and places of of secure strategic placement, they they tend to be pretty easy to spot. So unlike the Green Martians, who are just kind of out there, and you assume that they're out there, but you can't really put your finger on where they are, the Red Martians are are it's very it's well known where they are because they don't they don't really hide it, they they make a big deal of it. So th- there are yes probably really too many to cover. I mean there are just cities all over the place. Uh, there's Pundal, there's Duhor, um, there is. A specific, uh, an important one called uh, Patarth, P-T-A-R-T-H. And the reason that this is important is because it is home to the princess of Patarth, who is named Thuvia. Thuvia, T-H-U-V-I-A, is someone that we meet early on and then meet again later in her own book called Thuvia, Princess of Mars. Or or maybe it's just Thuvia of Mars. Either way, Thuvia of Mars was the first book that I read in the John Carter series, which is kind of funny because it's not the one with John Carter in it. It's, it's actually more about Carthoris and Thuvia than it is anyone else, but I didn't really care, and I didn't know any better, and it was very difficult to tell which book to start with. It was quite, quite, none of them really sound like a first book. It starts with Princess of Mars, and then goes to God of Mars, and then Thuvia, and you you can't really figure out which is which. So sitting in my uh, grandfather's workshop, where he kept all of his pulp fiction books, sitting in there trying to figure out where to start was always kind of... Um, a mystery to me, and Thuvia seemed like a good one to start with. It had a, a cool-looking girl on it with a, a big cat, and I figured, yeah, that, that seems like a good place to start. And it was. It was an okay book. Now, Thuvia doesn't really get... Upon rereading the book, I don't feel like she gets... She she doesn't quite fulfill the all of the the expectation and promise that you sense she could fill when you first encounter her. She is, when you first encounter her, she is a a, a mysterious princess. You you don't really know who or what she is or why she's there, why she's significant. Turns out that she is has been kidnapped by uh by a ship bearing heliumite markings, flags, whatever. So it's kind of a, a setup that she is captured apparently by Helium, and Patarth and Helium are on brink of war as a result. But more importantly, Thuvia has the strange ability to telepathically communicate and, I guess, arguably control or maybe strongly suggest to wild beasts to do her bidding. Now, uh, in my memory, the, th- this was a much more prominent feature of Thuvia than when I actually reread for this series 
it was it, it was just barely mentioned. It came into into play like one time, and and then even even then it was it, it was pretty casual. It was just kind of a a brief mention of oh by the way I used this ability to keep us safe. In my memory, she had you know she had a cadre of animals of wild Martian beasts, which we'll get into in a later episode surrounding her at all times attacking anyone who who defies her such is not the the case of the writing however i think it begs to be non-canon it begs to be something that happens thuvia should be a beast master or beast mist a beast mistress uh, who controls all of the wild animals and and yeah kills anyone who 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 crosses her path uh, I meant crosses her path in a in a in a threatening way, not just anyone who she encounters. And I think that would be a great ability for a character to to have in that world, because there's no reason to believe that Thuvia is the only one. I don't think it's all Red Martians by any means. I don't think it would be a common thing, but I think it would be something that maybe is a, some some strain of an ancient Martian power surviving in certain individuals. Begs to begs to be a thing. So that's Thuvia. She is a red Martian from Patarth. There's Dejah Thoris, a red Martian from Helium. There is Helium itself. There's uh, lots of different different cities, which um, I could go into, but there's not all that much data on 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 many of them. So really, the thing to know is that. Red Martians dwell in in great cities. Think think of the sort of biggest science fantasy metropolis that you can think of and make that your city. And keep in mind that the Red Martians, while fairly, uh, I guess, civilized, they're not... There, there, there's really not a whole lot of unification happening. Most of the unification happening is is done through sort of favors and and debts and honor. If if someone does something to help you, then your city suddenly is friends with with that person's city. But if something something happens later that goes against something, then then the the tides will turn. So it it's a very it's an ever fluctuating kind of very um, disparate relationship between all of the cities. So you can only really be sure of a city uh, of the city that you are in, whether or not you are going to be if you're visiting a city, whether or not you're you if you're a friend when you go in, you you could be an enemy by the time you leave. You never know. You just don't know what kind of outside forces are occurring. So let's talk a little bit about technology now. The Red Martian uh, society is a lot more technologically advanced than, for instance, the Green Martians. The Green Martians, we know that they have a pretty good handle on on the lay of the land and the resources of the land. They, for instance, know that certain plants uh, provide a milk that you can drink and sustain yourself. They know where to go for to to be protected by the harsh Martian environment. 
the Red Martians probably deep down know some of the same kinds of things. I mean, if you find the right person, but but primarily they they rely on technology, whether that technology is is modern architecture and being able to build cities, or um, for instance, airships. Yes, Red Martians have airships, like flying airships. They also have a monorail system, so uh, underground monorail, like a subway. So um, the airship angle is introduced pretty early on in the first book. Uh, there's there there are some pretty fantastic airship battles in the first book, and it continues throughout. It's something that that you'll you'll experience throughout a couple of the books, and it's really really exciting complete with people falling over the sides and boarding another airship in midair. It's, it is, once again, to use an analogy or, or a reference that most modern listeners will, will be able to understand if you think of the skiff battle in Return of the Jedi. It's like that, except more of it. And just for the record, I don't think it's... I do not believe that it's just a chance, by chance, that there are so many reference points between Star Wars, uh, or at least things on on Tatooine from Star Wars, that you can point to John Carter as as kind of not analogies, but like reference points. I, I do not believe that's a, that's a coincidence, and and there's probably some that I'm missing in Dune conceptually. It's just that Dune has such a rich kind of culture and and world building in in ways that Star Wars doesn't quite have that it's it's a little bit difficult to divorce Dune from Dune for me at least but yeah there's there's a lot of reference points in Star Wars from that, that may arguably come straight from John John Carter so the airships are are um a feature that that stand out quite quite strongly in John Carter and I think if you were to play in that world, you would really be able to to emphasize the airship culture. It's primarily naval. It is it is primarily militaristic. The airships. You don't get the sense that they are are that, that there's a, a a very popular kind of you know passenger passenger um, flight industry there. It, it does seem to be militaristic. But then again, the Red Martian relationships with one another and with other other Martians are militaristic. So it's a little bit hard to take militarism out of Martian culture as a whole. Now, this is a point of some confusion for me, and that is um, the nature of weaponry in on Mars. Not only where the weaponry is manufactured, but also who has access to it. Or, or whether it's being manufactured at all. So it's it's not really super clear from the books where the the, the there are firearms and there are are melee weapons in John Carter books. It's not clear. I mean, certainly Green Martians and Red Martians both have firearms. So obviously both cultures have access to these weapons, to the the rather advanced weapons, but it's not super clear as to how they get them, whether one of them is manufacturing them and then selling them to the other, or which I don't really get the sense of, or whether maybe it's long-forgotten technology before some kind of cataclysmic event on Mars uh, that just keeps getting kind of reused and repaired and reused. So that's not very clear to me. 
as to where they come from, but there is that kind of uh, dualistic ranged weapons like small arms and um, and guns on the airships uh, and close combat stuff like swords and knives and daggers and things like that. That said, we do know that there is a science among the Red Martian civilizations. There are psychologists and inventors and mechanists. There, someone's maintaining the the atmosphere, the artificial atmosphere uh, chamber that consists of of a, a particularly potent air-producing plant. So there, there's definitely the awareness of technology and the importance of technology, and 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 there's there are people within you know the royal courts who are who are scientifically based so it's it's a position that is uh, revered enough at least to get to get court you know royal court time uh, and and to be on staff uh, um, within the court so you do get the sense that there's some kind of some kind of culture there of uh, with with a scientific background an analogy that i kind of keep thinking of in in my own mind is the Izet League is it league in Ravnica they're the sort of the mages who or the they're the inventors they're they're responsible usually through magic for for the beneficial technologies of of Ravnica that's kind of how i imagine it working in John Carter in John Carter's Barsoom the Red Martians sort of having these kind of half mad scientists half actual inventors coming up with all kinds of technology to serve a, a very specific purpose and i can only assume that some of that technology filters out into other societies just the way things do a downed airship reverse engineered by a green martian for instance who knows so that's that's the red martians technologically advanced or for Mars, I guess. Human-like. More human-like, I guess, than the Green Martians. And I don't necessarily mean that as a good thing. I'm just saying they are... They, John Carter could be mistaken for a Red Martian. Especially if he puts paint on his skin. red Like a red dye. Very bound to militarism and whatever form of honor that they that they believe in. And kind of seen as the superior race on Mars. And again, I'm not necessarily saying that is a good thing. I'm just saying that's the way they see themselves. They are, in their own mind, and in the mind of John Carter, because John Carter is a product of his time, he sees them as the dominant race of Mars, and therefore, because might makes right, they, they must be the, the ones to fight for. And, and that's what he ends up doing for better or for worse. Either way, there's a, a whole pastiche of Red Martian civilizations out there to play around with. While there is no strictly no no magic on Mars, there certainly is is technology that may as well be magical. And so you could have a lot of fun with the technology of Barsoom far beyond what is 
scene in the John Carter books. You could, if you can think of it, and you can think of kind of a, a science fantasy way to make something happen, then there's not really any reason to think that a Red Martian scientist would not have thought of that and invented it, at least a prototype for a campaign. That's the Red Martians of Barsoom. I hope that was more or less clear. Trying to discuss them without giving too many spoilers away, uh, and also trying to mitigate what I'm speaking of between what's actually in public domain and what's not in public domain can be tricky as well. So that's what I've got for the Red Martians. In the next episode, or in the next Barsoom episode, we will go over maybe another race. Who knows? Maybe there's another race. I mean, there's not, right? It's just green and red Martians. But who knows? Maybe there is. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me uh, via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as not Klaatu. I'm on the Freenode network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.